Daily Gazette Company presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Sports Editor, Ken Shot. Thank you, Scott Keezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have a variety of topics to talk about on this edition of the podcast. My Gazette colleague Adam Schinder will preview the U Albany football game, NCAA FCS playoff semifinals against South Dakota State on Friday night. My friend Mark Kesheser of the NBA on ESPN Radio and Guildland High School graduate comes on. We'll talk uh, some NBA, talk about the in-season tournament and some other uh, topics around the league. And then new Tri-City Valley Cats manager Greg Taggart will come on. We'll talk about his uh, hiring by the Valley Cats, signed a two-year contract earlier this week. I talked with him on Tuesday, so we'll discuss uh, his uh, new adventure in the Capital Region. So coming up, Adam Schinder, my Gazette colleague on UAlbany football as the Great Danes get set to head to South Dakota State for the uh, FCS semifinals. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Union College Athletic Director Jim McLaughlin. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Schott. A game without a crowd is just a scrimmage. A performance without an audience is just a rehearsal. Without your presence, high school sports and the performing arts aren't possible. Ensure that these essential extracurricular activities continue to enrich the lives of students in New York. Purchase a ticket to your local high school's game or performance. This message presented by NISFA and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Want to get all the latest news from the Daily Gazette on your phone or tablet? We have an app for that. The Daily Gazette app allows you to read all the newspaper stories and columns from our dedicated team of journalists. The app is free. You can download the app from the Apple or Google App Stores. Hi, this is Daily Gazette staffer Amira Ditchie. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous, healthy 2024. Welcome back to the podcast on Saturday night. The UAlbany football team defeated Idaho 30-22 in the uh, Kibbe Dome in Moscow, Idaho in the quarterfinals of the NCAA FCS uh, playoffs. And now the Great Danes head to South Dakota State to take on the top-ranked team, the Jackrabbits, number one in the country. And uh, Adam Schinder, who covered the game via the uh, TV on Saturday night and was doing a great job tweeting and all that fun stuff, it joins us to talk about the UAlbany Great Danes and what a magical ride this has been. Yeah, what, what, an, what an unbelievable season uh, this has been for the Great Danes. Uh, we say Saturday night, Saturday night into the very, very early <laughs> hours of Sunday at, morning. At least in the East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about it. At the beginning of the year, did anyone, because you always had a couple bad seasons, did anyone see this coming? I mean, from everything I gather from the team, they did. I don't know if they saw themselves being a Final Four team in the nation, uh, but this is a team that thought they had something. If you look back to, especially last year, uh, the record was bad. They were three and eight. Uh, they had a lot of problems on defense, and yet somehow they were in a million close games. They just managed to find ways to lose every single one of them. Uh, from the team perspective, they felt all right. If we learn how to win one or two of these games. All of a sudden, we're going to get things going our way. Uh, from an outside perspective, I could say uh, pretty much everything was was cautious optimism. Like, there's some talent on this team. There was some talent coming back. 
but it was a wait-and-see look for this team. Especially being they, they had a couple of tough losses at Marshall at Hawaii. But I think the Morgan State game, where they got a, I think it was a late field goal to win that game, I mean, was, was that maybe the seed that really got things going for him? Uh, from everything, really, that Greg Gattuso, the, the head coach, says, it was really the Hawaii trip. Uh, the Marshall trip started when they had a game at Marshall that they were leading through uh, through three quarters uh, and probably could have won against a pretty good uh, FBS team. And then the next week, going to Hawaii, uh, Gattuso did not make that trip. He was sick. <laughs> and it wasn't the game. They ended up losing by, uh, by, by 11 out at Hawaii. He said the energy the team had – on its off week, on its bye week after Hawaii's like, there's something pretty special there. And then right after that was Morgan State played in uh, some hurricane yep, conditions. Yeah. Uh, they win it. They win in overtime. They uh, they end up stopping a, uh, a the uh, the the tush push uh, quarterback <laughs> sneak like three separate times from Morgan State at the end of regulation to force a, a field goal that sent it to overtime. Uh, and from that point, other than one blip uh, when they went up to New Hampshire in October, this team has been. Absolutely phenomenal. It starts a quarterback. You know, let's talk about Poffenberger. Yeah, Reese Poffenberger you know, showed this last year, uh, was the runner-up for the Jerry Rice Award as the FCS Freshman of the Year uh, to Giovanni McCoy, the Idaho quarterback who he just beat mm-hmm. on Saturday night. He was you know, 24 touchdowns, four interceptions last year. He's been even better this year. Leads the nation in touchdown passes, uh, has set the UAlbany single-season record for total offense, uh, and also set the career uh Record at UAlbany for touchdown passes. He's got 60 now. Leads the country with 36 touchdown passes. Is a gunslinger in that in that old-fashioned se- in sense. He'll make some risky throws. He'll make some plays that you have absolutely no idea why he's doing what he's doing. But he makes it work. He's got. I will say he's got some some of that Brett Favre. Yeah, I was going to say that. He yeah. makes some plays. The his second touchdown pass Saturday night against Idaho. He's under pressure. Spins away. Does a full pirouette. Probably could have run for a first down, but he kept his eyes downfield and hit Brevin Easton for for a touchdown. He he makes plays, and he is a very very exciting quarterback. And then uh, Dylan Kelly, uh, talk about his play on defense. I mean, he's really he's coming. He was a walk on uh, when he came to you all, but he's really he's, he, made himself. Yeah, he started he started player. his career back in twenty nine as a as a walk on safety uh, coming out of coming out of the. Western New York, uh, the nephew of uh, of Hall of Fame Buffalo Bills quarterback Jim Kelly, uh, which nobody knew until this year. It was kind of kept secret <laughs> until somebody somebody found out. Hey, Jim's at these games. Like, yeah, he's my uncle. <laughs> oh, uh, finalist, uh, one of the top three finalists for the Buck Buchanan Award as, as the FCS Defensive Player of the Year. A, a true like playmaking linebacker. Uh, he's one of these guys who's in in everywhere. He's actually his numbers are actually kind of tailing off uh, at the later stage of the year, and that he's not racking up you know 15, 18, 23 tackles in a game like he had uh, down in Towson earlier this year. But he's a guy who he leads what is the number one rush defense in in the in the country in FCS, and then has two phenomenal edge rushers uh, right in front of him. How has the defense turned things around this year? Because I mean, they were they weren't good last year. Yeah, uh, the big thing guys have gotten more comfortable. I'll say. Probably the biggest uh, the the biggest things they've done this year. One, they are getting after the quarterback for the last three seasons. Uh, the spring of twenty twenty one, the fall of twenty twenty one, and twenty twenty two. This team generated almost no pressure. Most of it that was in the two twenty twenty one seasons was by uh, Jared Verse, who's now at Florida State, probably a yeah. first half of the first round NFL draft pick. 
this year. This year, they're getting pressure. They have the most sacks in the country. They only had one Saturday night at Idaho, but it was a big one. Uh, Anton Junkaj forced a, forced a fumble right after Albany had taken the lead in the fourth quarter. He's got 15 sacks. That's a school record. A.J. Simon's got 12 and a half sacks. So they're getting pressure, and their corner play is much, much better. Uh, Amir Hall transferred in from Richmond, uh, All-American corner, and has really helped redefine this defense because now they get pressure, they can stop teams. They can they can stop teams from making big plays in there, and then they're tackling up front. Their defensive line was very inexperienced last year. They gave up a ton of huge running plays. Now they got the number one rush defense in the country. Watching that game on Saturday night, I happened to you know watching get along you know, along with you there. It just seems like I know. You know they, I think they were fortunate to get to the quarterfinals. Um, you know, you know they yeah, eked out an overtime win the week before. But it just seems like the, the more that game went on, you Albany was gaining confidence, and they. Yeah, playing in a with uh, an unusual football arena. It's it's an arena. It's not yeah. a, it's not a stadium. It's not a dome. It's more like a hockey rink. You probably yeah. put a hockey rink in in that and in, in that place. But uh, it just seems like as that game went on, they were gaining confidence, and Idaho was starting to you know yeah, feel it, like they were was, in trouble. It was an it was an odd game. You you say you say it actually was a, it was a stadium before it was a dome. It was an outdoor <laughs> facility that they just. Duck a roof on top of. That's why it looks like a giant, like old field house, like yeah. a giant Quonset hut almost. Uh, but what they, uh, but Idaho just left the door open. Uh, their their field goal kicker Ricardo Chavez, who was one of the best kickers in the country, hit the game winner the week before. He missed three field goals. Uh, it was three of six. Missed three field goals. Had an extra point blocked. Idaho did a lot of getting to the U Albany 20, 25, 30 yard line, and their offense kind of sputtered from there. They had trouble in that kind of like the that deep red zone area. And when they left the door open, U Albany, which from from the time they got their second touchdown until uh, Reese Poffenbarger hits Brevin Easton for about a 40 yard gain early in the fourth quarter to set up the field goal that made it 1917, the U Albany offense had done nothing for about a quarter and a half. And uh, but they got an opportunity, and this is a team they are a, they are a high energy, high vibes football team. And when stuff starts going good, they are a snowball team. Yeah, and then uh, they get the uh, late touchdown, and then of course um, there was a field goal there, which ended up <laughs> becoming a bad beat on the uh, uh, Sports Center on Monday night with Scott Van Pelt because I think it went the the point over under was like fifty, and the, the field goal made it fifty two, and that was a bad beat. But uh, anyway, just. What does it mean for this program to get this far? Yeah, this is a team, and I, I talked to to Bob Ford, who's basically who's the the godfather, the grandfather yeah. uh, of U Albany football. Uh, coached them from you know when they came back, they you know the program had three years in the early 1920s and was still the you know, state college for teachers at <laughs> yeah. Albany. Came back in 1970 as a club team. He took them for you know 40 plus seasons from club to D3 to D2 to a non-scholarship, what was then 1AA team, to a scholarship team in the in the Northeast Conference, to then the CAA. He leaves after their first year in the CAA in 2013. And it's taken a while for this team to, to build. This is kind of where they envision themselves eventually getting to. Uh, it was very much a, we have to, it, it was a trust the process mm-hmm. uh, type thing. You know, they get there in 2019. It looks like things are going to turn around. They were hit very, very badly uh, by COVID in the sense that they basically did not get on the football field at all or really recruit at all mm-hmm. in 2020. It took them a couple of years to to build back up. They had to reshuffle the coaching staff. The coordinators are both new from four years ago. And uh, they, they found something. And, you know, success at the FCS level 
is either very, very long as the North Dakota states of the world uh, seem to indicate, or it can be fleeting. This really seems like it is the start of something uh, as this team kind of finds itself really moving into the upper echelon of what is a, a changing but always very good CAA. How, how good do you feel for Greg Gattuso? Because I mean, he, had, he had to go through those cu- couple of bad years, and you wondered if he was uh, his he was on the hot seat at all. Yeah, I mean, he'd signed an, he'd signed an extension a couple of years back, which uh, he signed an extension after they had a couple of bad seasons because it had largely come out that uh, it was an extension that had been agreed to after 2019 that they basically – couldn't do because of the pandemic. Yep. Uh, he would certainly seem to have earned another contract uh, based off this. And, you know, he was a coach who yeah, brought this team to a point in 2019 where they looked really, really good. They've been kind of feast or famine in his in his 10 seasons, but this is very much the the culmination of, of 10 years of work. What does this mean for the program overall? I mean, is this, do they be, are they going to be able to think to attract better players? I mean, they obviously have good players now, but did they get a chance to you know get involved with? Some? I mean, this this would the the exposure they're getting right now is probably the best recruiting tool they've had in a very long time. You know, they're getting looked at. Their name is out there. And for kids who are looking to play at the FCS level or maybe the low FBS level, they're saying, hey, I go to Albany. This is a place that has developed guys. Uh, it's a place that gives guys a chance. And, and, yeah, this is an incredible recruiting tool. The coaches can't get out on the road yeah, and recruit yeah. as much, but the publicity you get is an incredible recruiting tool at a time like this. And Do you worry that some of these players might you know, enter the portal after the season's over? It's it's always a uh, it's always a threat. I mean, it's a threat at any point in, in college athletics right now. The thing that UAlbany has, they have a number of older players, where they have a couple of players like Poffenbarger, uh, a transfer for him is very complicated. It would be his second transfer as an undergrad, which could mean, as we saw with, with Siena basketball and Sean Dewar Gordon, that he'd be sitting out in a, a, a year. Mm. Uh, he could be, he's coming, he'd be coming back next year as probably the odds on favorite to be the top player in, in FCS football. Uh, you know, guys, guys are going to transfer. It happens. Yeah. Uh, will a large number transfer? I can't really say that. This is a team that seems to enjoy being together, it's a team that has a lot of, of guys who are who are a lot of important players who are transfers. Uh, so a lot of those guys who are still undergrads, they're probably here. The opponent on Friday night, South Dakota State, undefeated, top rank in the country. Seems like you Albany has his work cut out for him. Yeah, go to go to you know make a make a trip back in the in the wee hours of Sunday morning. Get back here in Albany at no, uh, around noon on Sunday and then turn right around. You got to go back for a Friday night game out in, out in Brookings, South Dakota. You know, the elements weren't a factor uh, in the Kibbe Dome on, on Saturday. They very well could be uh, this Friday night, South Dakota State in their uh, quarterfinal win over Villanova. 30-mile-an-hour wins yep. out there. Uh, this is a tough game. South Dakota State is one of the, you know, premier programs in FCS football right now, won the national championship. They haven't lost... Uh, since the opening of the 2022 season, they won, went on, won the national championship last year. They're undefeated, only FCS uh, undefeated team in the country right now. Uh, a ton of all, you Albany's got four four All Americans on offense. Uh, South Dakota State has four All Americans on. Uh, you Albany has four All Americans on defense. <laughs> South Dakota State has four All Americans on offense, including their quarterback Mark Gronowski, who who might be the best quarterback at the FCS level, which is strength on strength. It is going to be a fun game. Uh, the biggest challenge you Albany has faced thus far, uh, clearly, but also 
the way this team is playing right now, the way they're feeling right now, they're going on this trip feeling like we can beat anybody we're matched up against. What is it going to take to pull off the upset and get, uh, and get to Frisco, Texas in January 6th? Yeah, this is going to take the best game they've played so far. It's going to take uh, – they can't turn the ball over. They probably have to force turnovers. They have to pressure the quarterback, which is something they've done all season. Uh, the big X factor in this game is going to probably going to be special teams. Uh, UAlbany has had – Uneven special teams. They allowed a couple of big returns against uh, against Idaho. They don't kick the ball deep on kickoff, so they concede field position a little bit. They've had a couple of squirrely moments in the in the return game uh, themselves. They had a uh, a fumble late in the first half uh, that gave Richmond some points uh, in the in the second round, and a near fumble when the, when their punt returner tried to get out of the way of a ball he was fair catching against Idaho. If they can play a mistake free game on special teams. Uh, and and really come out even in that in that sense of the game, then it comes down to getting pressure on Gronowski and forcing turnovers. You'll be t- paying attention to that game Friday night, and uh, be a lot of fun following those tweets and watching the game. So, Adam, appreciate a few minutes. No problem. That's Adam Schinder of the Gazette. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk NBA with uh, Mark Ketcher, the voice of the uh, NBA on ESPN Radio, and your little high school graduate. So, stay tuned. Hi, this is Tri-City Valley Cat President Rick Murphy. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Sports Editor Ken Schott. Speed, skill, physicality. Home to college hockey's elite teams, coaches, and student-athletes. ECAC Hockey, 12 programs competing at the highest level. A league where champions are born and world-class professionals are trained. Where history is abundant and a commitment to the cutting edge is unrivaled. The best facilities, the fiercest competition. ECAC Hockey, there's no experience like it. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Natasha Von Holdridge. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous and healthy 2024. Welcome back to the podcast. We're going to talk some NBA now. The in-season tournament is over. The Los Angeles Lakers win the first NBA in-tournament uh, uh, title with the NBA Cup. Uh, like they need another championship. But uh, Mark Ketcher, the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio, is with us. And Gilton, the high school graduate. And Mark uh, normally, uh, first of all, welcome back to the podcast. But secondly, uh, you, our you know, NBA roundtable partner, Tim Reynolds, from the Associated Press and Ford and Native, he, he decided that covering a Miami Heat game on Wednesday night was more important than joining us on the podcast. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't understand that. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, I was completely wrong in Las Vegas when I said the Lakers weren't going to hang a in-season tournament banner. Not sure how I got that one wrong. <laughs> and lastly, yes, I feel naked coming on without my buddy Tim Reynolds because uh, we've been inseparable in this podcast. I know Hornets Heat is a big deal down in South Florida <laughs> on a Wednesday night, so I understand getting the cold shoulder. Actually, I don't understand getting the cold shoulder. Tim, come back next time, please. You can't leave this to me all alone. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about the in-season tournament. It's the first. It was first year for this. Uh, what were your thoughts about it? Uh, I mean, I, I couldn't get into it. Um, not not because the Sixers didn't make it. Just it, it just seemed out of place. I I, I, I couldn't really get. I mean, the only game I really 
really watched I had some interest in was that last game between uh, Golden State and Sacramento where Golden State needed to uh, you know, get a big differential, a point differential to get in, and, and they blew the lead and blew the chance of getting into the uh, uh, quarterfinals. Yeah, which is interesting, that one, before I answer your actual question, I remember thinking in that game, I'm always looking for the unintended consequences. And one of them is when we get to the end of the season, if the Golden State Warriors are missing, let's say, a home seed by one game, they have a five-point lead over Sacramento with about a minute to go. They play that game completely differently than they would knowing they needed to win by whatever it was, 12 or 13 points. And not only did they not do that, they lost the game, as you pointed out. And so maybe that's one of the unintended consequences. But, you know, when they rolled the idea out a couple of years ago, my head was spinning. We were at an NBA conference, broadcasters conference, two years ago. And I'm like, how are they going to make the schedule to work? What does it mean? Are these games count? Do they not count? And then when they rolled it out last summer in Las Vegas, I saw what they were doing. And I, I, I was all on board. Uh, anything to enliven games in October, November, and December pre-Christmas, to me, if you're an NBA fan, is a home run. Now, what I didn't expect was, you know, the courts to look like they did, whether yeah. you liked them or not. I think it, it clued in everyone that this is a different game. And then, uh, uh, to me, a stroke of brilliance was to have them all on Tuesdays and Fridays. So you knew if it was Tuesday, it was a cup night. Same on Friday. Courts looked a certain way. Now, if you didn't get into group play, I thought the knockout rounds in the quarters were about as close to playoff atmosphere as uh, you know you would find, especially at this time of year. I'm thinking of that game, Boston at Indiana. That was that was different sound and feel than any other December fifth game that I can ever recall in NBA history. So, from that perspective, it's a win. Um, you know, the Las Vegas portion, it worked out for the league. They had the Lakers. Uh, I remember in between the semifinal games going up to the we, – we were off the floor on the semis Thursday, courtside on Saturday. But on Thursday between games, I went behind our seating. There was a club area just to go use the lavatory. And as I'm walking through the club, I would have thought I was transported to Los Angeles. <laughs> it was all highfalutin, young people with money, you know, the drinks, the whole thing. And I'm like, this feels like I'm in L.A. So that worked out that they had a built-in fan base that could drive four-plus hours. So the neutral site part will be interesting. Um, But if the whole purpose was to drum up support or interest in NBA basketball before Christmas, to me, the job was done. Um, You know, I, I came across a number of NBA lifers during the summer who I asked about this, and almost all of them didn't like the idea Um, Didn't think anybody would care. Uh, Guys who have this much money, you know, they have a half million dollars rattling around in their, uh, you know, sofa cushions. So what do they care about another $500,000? You know, I thought the players bought in. I thought the coaches bought in. I'm sure they're going to make some tweaks. uh, But for year one, I thought it was a success. Yeah, I mean... I guess the, the seeing the Indiana Pacers in there, when I don't think anybody expected the Pacers to be there, does that legitimize make this thing legitimate? To see, you don't see a, a team like Indiana. I mean, I think a lot of people are thinking Boston, New York, Philadelphia might get there or Milwaukee, but to see Indiana get to the championship game, what does what does that mean? Does that uh, give some you know, next year some other teams hope? 
You know, it's interesting you say that because when when they did the official rollout in July, I was at Summer League in Vegas and Seth Greenberg and I were on the air and I remember we were discussing it and I thought this feels like the kind of tournament that maybe the Celtics and the Lakers and the Bucks don't reach because maybe they don't care as much, but it's that next level, that team that's trying to break through, the Oklahoma City Thunder, the Indiana Pacers. At that point, I said the Detroit Pistons. Clearly, that was a very bad idea back in July. <laughs> but you know what I mean? A young team that's hungry. Like, you know, Tyrese Halliburton was perfect for it. Uh, an ascending player with a bunch of guys who've never been to the playoffs, and this was their chance to feel what it's like. And Rick Carlisle told us at least a couple times over the weekend that what they felt and sensed is only going to benefit them when they get to the real deal, you know, come this April. And we'll see. You know, we'll see if they flame out. They don't even make it to the playoffs. You know, maybe it's not that big of a deal. But as we sit here in the middle of December and offer runner-up performance, um, I think, yeah, I think it offers something uh, to other teams like the Houston Rockets, you know, who are looking with young players to see if they can take it to that next level, if they can get a sense of what playoff basketball and that atmosphere may be like. Uh, you mentioned the courts. I mean, some of the courts look I me, mean, they had basically the same designs as a matter of color. Some uh, some look good. Some looked awful. I mean, the 76, 76ers court, blood red. I just like, it was, that was not easy on the eyes. I mean, and to see it, but then to see the Celtics court without the parquet was just mind boggling. I mean, I think they wanted to, some kind of parquet and the, the league said no. So, I mean, what about those courts? I mean, obviously it, it costs a lot of money, but the, the, yeah, I mean, is that, we'll, we'll see, we'll see that down the road with these courts uh, and with these uh, teams. Maybe they tone it back a little bit. I went to Philly for the one cup game group stage that we did, and it wasn't as bad on the eyes as it is on television. Yeah. You know, in the definition of high def, uh, you know, in this era of high def, I should say, um, it doesn't take much because everything looks so good and so perfect and the reds are redder and the blues are bluer. So maybe they dial it back a little bit. I, yeah, sacrilege was probably the word I was looking for. <laughs> Uh, to not have parquet in Boston. And the Mavericks never even used their floor at all because they had some slip issues. And they're like, yeah, we're, we're not doing that court. We're good with what we have. Um, Rick Carlisle explained the court in Indiana, which had kind of this Carolina blue, um, like a pastel blue. He said it looked like a skating rink yeah. on TV. And he was right. That's exactly what it was. Um, so maybe they dialed that back a little bit, but I really think they liked the distinction of knowing you were watching something different than just a, a normal regular season game. Yep. Um, what about, I mean, I guess Adam Silver is looking maybe at some tweaks, uh, in particular the point differential. I think a lot of the fans were not happy with that because you know, some teams look like they're running up the score in these games. I mean, is that something they had to look at uh, you know, to, to maybe tweak a little bit? I think so. I'm not sure what the answer is, though. That was one thing we discussed while we were in Vegas. Like, there's going to be tiebreakers when you have this many teams, you know, playing four games each in groups of four. Um, you know, how do you discern who goes? I thought the commissioner, we had him on our air between semifinal games. And, you know, he pointed out that, you know, there aren't too many con sporting countries in the world that feel the way that American sports fans do. And I'll say North American. I'll include Canada as mm -hmm. well. and Maybe Mexico. I, I really don't know because it's more of a soccer thing down there. So 
maybe perhaps, you know, I, uh, they shouldn't be included in that cultural feel that you don't run up the game. Game's over. You don't even take a shot. You know, guys are dribbling out uh, the final seconds. And even to take a shot attempt gets you side-eye. Yeah. So, you know, to, to know you need 21 points and you intentionally foul a guy because he's a bad free-throw shooter, it feels in poor taste. And that's how we've been raised. So I don't know how they fix that or they just – Hope that on those nights, everybody understands anything's up for grabs. You might get beat by 20. You may capitulate, but the other team's not going to. So I don't know how they fix that. People will be smarter than me. will have to uh, look into it. Um, but, you know, as far as uh, other parts of competition, um, I'm, I'm sure they'll, you know, take a look at, at a number of things. I know they uh, wanted to talk to the players, the coaches. I think the scheduling on the back end for the teams who don't make the knockout round. Um, you know, that that was somewhat of an issue because you're getting it late. And not only because coaches and, you know, you want to scout and get ahead and get your travel taken care of. I think it was also for the fans because a lot of those games, you know, tickets didn't go on sale till maybe two days before the game itself. Mm-hmm. And then there's a competitive balance issue when, you know, the Knicks – and the Celtics now have to play five times a year. And, you know, another team may not have as competitive a team that they got to play an extra game. And again, when we look at tiebreakers and we look at uh, down the road, the actual playoffs, unintended consequence that, you know, a team might have to face a really good team one or two times more uh, than someone else in their own conference. Yeah. And we should let people know that the championship game does not count toward the standings. That was the, I was the only game of this right. little tournament. So you got nobody wants to have an 83rd game in their schedule. So, so somebody's somebody's going to score a uh, hundred points in one of those games <laughs> and it won't count. It never happened. Yep. I mean, it was it too compacted. I mean, I, 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 my, I was going to ask him, should, should they spread it into January? But then again, in January, you're talking NFL playoffs and the NBA might get, uh, lost in the shuffle that's in season tournament. Yeah, you know, Ken, that was one thing I thought, and I think originally the league had presented it to us two years ago, that it was truly an in-season tournament. I mean, technically it's in-season after game one, yeah. but it felt like it would start a little bit later. And I think they just looked at the calendar, like you said, and they just couldn't find a good place for it, or maybe they didn't want to elongate it. Um, cause it felt a little too soon for me. Like it's opening night. And then a week later we're starting group stage, you know? And so I don't know, maybe, maybe it's right where they want it to be. I think they wanted to have it done before Christmas and have it lingering on, but maybe there is, um, you know, an appropriate time later. Maybe you have a couple of weeks between group games. You don't have to have two games a week, yeah. you know, perhaps that's something they can look into, but I don't know where on the calendar cause your points well taken. This was directed at that weekend, that weekend being the one where college football's regular season ends and college football's bowl season begins. So it's kind of a dead Saturday. It's Heisman Saturday. It's Army-Navy Saturday. Mm -hmm. But you can slip in an 8 o'clock Eastern time game in there. And pretty much that, I mean, that's a golden day in December uh, before the NFL starts playing games on Saturday. And as you point out, if you get into January, you know, the NFL's already got a lock on Saturday, Sunday, and now they're doing a Monday game, you know, early in the playoffs. Yeah. So I'm sure they looked at the calendar and the smart guys in the NBA were like, no, this is probably where it needs to be. But I, I bet you everything's on the table uh, probably as soon as they got back from Las Vegas on Monday. And, of course, here in the Capital Region, it's, so it's also NCAA FCS uh, football day with the Albany Great Dames. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, Still alive and playing well. Yeah, so that's an interesting uh, game on Friday night. Uh, let's look around the league. Uh, uh, Victor uh, Wembanyama hasn't been. I mean, it hasn't brought su- success to the San Antonio Spurs. They just lost their 17th straight game on Monday night as we talk here on Wednesday. What's been the issue? I mean, is it him or is it the, the players around him or uh, is Greg Popovich? What's going on there? Yeah, it's uh, it's a surprise uh, to everybody. I think, you know, and, and I'll just kind of parrot what P.J. Carlissimo said on the air. Uh, you know, he and Pop were tight. You know, he won championships as Pop assistant two decades ago. But, you know, uh, Coach Pop felt that they were going to be competitive. You know, just looking on paper, it was more – you know, than just a team that, you know, won the lottery and had a long way to go. And, um, you know, he felt they had a team that could, if not make some noise, at least have a somewhat competitive season. And clearly that hasn't happened at all this year. I'm not sure what the issue is, really, because Wembenyama, I thought, early in the season played well, played in the team aspect. Um, I haven't looked at their schedule to see if, you know, they were front loaded and just had a lot of tough games, but it just feels like it's a typical young team. that just can't close. Um, and, and oftentimes they're not even in position to close because they're so far behind. So, um, yeah, I don't have a good answer for that one. I know I will see them on MLK day in Atlanta in January. I think that's on the 15th. I hope that losing streak is done by then. Cause, uh, <laughs> you know, we would like to have a, a nice, conversation with Greg Popovich, and I'm sure he won't be in a very good mood if they've lost 37 in a row coming yeah. into that one. Um, but, you know, look, it's a team for the future. Uh, we saw Wembenyama at Summer League, and there was so much hype. You're like, there's no way. I mean, we overhyped this guy. And then you, you see what he's doing in year one, and he may not be the rookie of the year, um, you know, leader candidate right now, but, you know, he's among a handful of guys and, and clearly – with his skill set at that size, uh, you know, give him a little time to put on some weight, give him some time to, you know, get some better teammates. He obviously has the outstanding coaching, uh, you know, from Greg Popovich, you know, whether you love him or not, uh, for all the years he's put in the league. So, you know, really hard. Between them and Detroit, I have no idea what's going on there because those teams should not be that bad. Yeah, I mean, San Antonio at 319 going into Wednesday is not the worst record in the, in the NBA. It's Detroit at 2-21. <laughs> no. and 21. Well, What's going on? I mean, what's going on with the Pistons? I mean, I, I think Tim Reynolds wrote about this a couple weeks ago. I mean, the, the Spurs and the Pistons are uh, two of the mis- most disappointing teams so far. Yeah, that, that one I can't figure out. I've been waiting for the Pistons to make their move the last couple of years, and I figured, all right, Kate Cunningham's going to get healthy. Here we go. Uh, we saw them in Summer League. I know Summer League doesn't mean anything compared to the regular season, but you saw some of these guys now with two years, three years' experience that were ready to take the next step. They bring in Monty Williams, pay him a fortune, uh, but you know he's a guy who can mold a young team, and they win two of their first three games. So you're like, all right, here we go. This is a team that, you know, maybe, you know, wins 30 games this year and, and you're set up for the year after that. And what has transpired since um, is just beyond belief. I mean, it feels like there's no confidence at all. Um, again, same thing. Couldn't tell you why they have regressed, why players have reg- regressed in, in a certain way. But it's another team that just doesn't look like it has any clue at all. And you might even need to blow up some of the pieces. Now, that's, you know, an extreme look at it. Uh, maybe for a new coach teaching a new system, 
to young guys who, you know, uh, had only learned one other way. And maybe this is going to take a while before they can figure out. Maybe they have to have an absolute disaster of a season uh, before they rebuild it. But it's a total surprise to me um, with an ace of a head coach, regardless of his contract and salary. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I can't figure that one out. Uh, Detroit really has uh, completely befuddled me for these 25, first 25 games of the season. What team has surprised you the most and positively? Well, I figure it's got to be Minnesota. I mean, we knew they were a decent team, but when everyone, and me included, you know, before opening night, you know, we sit in the hotel and we're like, all right, let's write out our Western Conference from 1 to 10. You know, who do you think is going to, you know, be in the top six? Who do you think are going to be the play-ins? And, you know, I'm sitting here saying, is Minnesota even a play-in team? Like, I just don't understand you know, with Carl uh, Anthony Towns and, um, you know, Anthony Edwards certainly is, you know, going to be the ascendant star on that team. But I don't think it works. And Rudy Gobert, where does he fit in? And meanwhile, they've got the best record in the conference, if not the best record in the league. So, um, you know, clearly I knew nothing about Minnesota. And then I figured Oklahoma City was going to take the next step, but I didn't think it would take this big of a step. I mean, that's the team where you look at young players um, on teams that had high draft picks, and you wonder if Sam Presti made the right selections and they can all play together. And, you know, as long as they have Shea Gilgis Alexander, and, you know, perhaps the big guy is going to, you know, turn into the real deal. Uh, but I love that Oklahoma City team. So I'd say co surprises, and they both come out of the West in Minnesota and in Oklahoma City. Is Golden State done? Is the dynasty dead? Man, I, I hate. I hate to have funerals and uh, and pour the dirt on uh, the coffin, uh, but as you know, as we tape this and, and we await the uh, latest suspension for Draymond Green, and I know Clay Thompson hasn't played well, um, you know, and they're still trying to figure out, you know, their bench. It's been a couple of years. It it doesn't feel good. I know that. I, I, any any Steph Curry team, Steve Kerr team, um, and and the fact that you know. Six teams guaranteed make the playoffs and, you know, four others are going to have a shot for those final two spots. It's hard to say they're done, done. But I think their championship window, you know, you could say is closed. I mean, they're a team that can compete, but it doesn't appear to be they can compete well enough, you know, to get to that championship championship game. I hate to say it because that's not me. That's that's not the kind of uh, hot air I like to uh, throw out there in the airwaves, (laughs) especially with a team that has had as much success as they have. But we've been wondering when that window was going to shut, and it feels like it's um, it's right there. It's just a matter of those little lock tops on top of the windows, mm-hmm. and they've been turned also. Yeah. I, of course, the biggest soap opera during the offseason was the James Harden, Philadelphia 76ers, Harden accusing uh, Daryl Morey of lying to him. And, but it just seems as it's, 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 it's everything plays out for Harden. He just, it's, it's, never, it's never his fault. It's everybody else's fault. So how – Good was it for the Sixers to, to dump him to the Clippers? Oh, huge. In my eyes, huge. They're playing so much better. I know you're a Philly fan, yep. so to kind of unlock Tyrese Maxey and just let him be the lead guard there, and uh, he and Joel Embiid look like they're you know playing so well together. They're, they're playing um, much better than I think any of us thought. When we came into this season, we're like Boston and Milwaukee. Those are your teams. And Boston may be the team. Milwaukee has a lot to show us. I love Dame Lillard, 
but um, it just it just doesn't look right yet with he and, and Giannis. And I know 16 and 7 should be a really good uh, first 23 games for any franchise. Mm-hmm. They would take it. But it, it, it doesn't seem as good as what I've seen from Philadelphia this year. So I think, to me, that was huge. Uh, you know, there was a time where I'm like, where's he going to go? Who's going to want him? And he's running out of spots. And maybe the Clippers are his last spot. And maybe that's going to work out in the end for him. Um, but there's not many more places to go to, to put up with that show. You know, he was a supremely talented Hall of Fame player. Uh, he just plays a style that, um, you know, it, it, it's it's not optimal for your team, for certain teams. You know, you, you want to have more free-flowing offense that doesn't always stop through him. And then there's, you know, the whole, uh, you know, clubhouse part of it from mm-hmm. all. And now we haven't interviewed James much over the over his entire career. I don't want to say he's been protected by uh, his public relations directors, but he's been protected by his public relations directors. <laughs> and by by all accounts, he's a really nice guy, very thoughtful guy. So I don't want to portray him as the bad guy. Um, but, you know, uh, the reputation takes a hit when it's always somebody else and you always want out. And he's wanted out more times than not over the last four or five years. Yeah. And I know you work with uh, Doc Rivers there at ESPN, but uh, the best thing that happened with the Sixers, too, was letting Doc go and uh, bring in Nick Nurse. And it's been a, you know, I, I know things didn't end well in Toronto for him, but uh, yeah, he's done a good job with, with this team. He's, you know, they've had some great games. I mean, they're, they're blowing out some teams, and it's just. Yeah, you know, just find there's got to find a way to beat the you know the teams ahead of them like Boston. They you know they blew a lead a couple weeks ago against them, but uh, finding the way to to beat win those games. I mean, I think they can challenge you know, Boston for the Atlantic Division. Yeah, I think I, I I think the world of Nick Nurse. He did such a great job in Toronto, and you know now he comes to Philadelphia. Change of scenery is sometimes huge. And, um, you know, he'll have a lot of money at his disposal, you know, as far as roster building and, and changes and tweaks where in Toronto, it felt like, you know, they were as big a market as that is, you know, it felt like that team and maybe someday still they might tear it down or trade some of those young guys, you know, Embiid and Maxi. Tobias Harris now has new life. You know, he, he, he kind of was the fourth forgotten guy mm-hmm. who's a really you know, decent NBA player, better than decent NBA player. Um, and then, you know, Kelly Oubre, when he gets back from uh, the mysterious injury, <laughs> uh, you know, he looked like he was in a good place yep. too. So, yeah, I'm a Nick Nurse fan, uh, and I love Doc Rivers too. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just time, Yeah, and it was time. And, uh, and Doc will – I don't know if he wants to get back in the game. They all do. I'm sure PJ would love to get back in the game after all these years out. You're a coach. You're, you always want to be a coach. Jeff Van Gundy surprised me that he was a broadcaster as long as he was. I always thought he wanted to get back in, but sometimes the allure of the the job. I saw Doc in Vegas, and I said, you're going to give me the same typical answer, aren't you? And he goes, yes. He goes, I leave the game, and I didn't win or lose. I, I, I definitely didn't lose. Yeah. You know, and that's the biggest thing. He sees coaches on the way out. They're like, you know, are you enjoying broadcasting? And he's like, I never lose and I get a good night's sleep. So <laughs> it was just time. And uh, I, I think it was for the best. New voice and um, uh, another uh, addition by subtraction, uh, sending out James Hart. Well, we didn't need Tim Reynolds for this segment. So 
Maybe we won't need that. <laughs> more, more hot air for me to, uh, you know, take very good oxygen and turn it into CO2. Yeah. I apologize. Well, we'll, we'll chat uh, around All-Star break. How's that sound? We'll, we'll try to get together and, uh, you know, have the round table because we, we can have a better idea what's going on here in the league. That'll be fun. And I assume uh, Mr. Reynolds will be in Indianapolis for that. So it'll be a little bit of a 518 reunion and uh, we'll, we'll document it all right here. All right. Mark, appreciate a few minutes. All right, Ken, you got it. Thank uh, you. That's Mark Ketchester. Coming up, I'll speak with new Tri-City Valley Cats manager, Greg Taggart. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Ted Remsnyder. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Schott. If you really want to know what's going on in your community, you have to read the Daily Gazette. We don't take a side. We're right down the middle, and we're going to get to the truth. Our reporters and photographers are out in the field bringing you updates every minute with trust, accuracy, and integrity. From the first page to the last page, independent, probing journalism. We're finding out what's going on in the community where nobody else is covering. It's who we are. It's what we do. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Shenandoah Breer. I would like to wish you a happy holiday season and a great 2024. Welcome back to the podcast and the uh, Tri-City Valley Cats named a new uh, manager on Tuesday. And he's been around uh, independent baseball for nearly 30 years. And he signed a two-year contract. Uh, Please welcome to the podcast, Greg Taggart. Greg, uh, appreciate you coming on for a few minutes. And uh, congratulations and welcome to the uh, Capital District. How are you feeling right now? No, excited and and ready. Uh, You know, like I said, uh, you told the people during the press conference today that, um, you know, when it was time to, to look for a new position or consider options uh, as much as uh, they researched me, you know, hopefully, uh, and I know they did and had a lot of good candidates that uh, I did the same and excited to be a part of the organization. Now, you, like I said in the intro, you've been around independent baseball for a long time, 29 years uh, in professional baseball. I mean, you, you managed in the, the uh, Northern League, the uh, American Association. Uh, you've been in the Frontier League before. Uh, what is it? What is it like being involved in independent baseball for such a long time? Well, I think uh, you know, and my my roots actually started and uh, with the Ohio Valley Redcoats of the Frontier League when it was um, along with the Northern League. And then I think anybody that you know maybe wants to you know learn the history. It's, it's a great story you know the northern league the rebirth of modern day independent baseball as it was called back then and obviously over the years especially since the pandemic and the changes from the affiliated side and the partner league designation uh, you know at the root of it all was the one thing that i fell in love with and you know at the time i had been scouting with the tigers a little bit and you know you had the 1993 four-time and the opportunity came up uh, in Ohio Valley, and you know, and it was the way it was explained to me. I, they said, "Hey, if this is a great opportunity for somebody who has been on the field but also enjoys the scouting aspect. You get a chance to do it all." 
And those of us who started around that same time period, the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, we, we took care of everything from scouting, tryout camps, negotiating the contracts, you know, and managing the, managing the team during the year, you know, ordering all the apparel, the socks, the mm-hmm. bats, <laughs> you name it. Um, now, over the years, you know, as, as things started to, to develop and change, you know, that's not always the case. You know, today, the, as it's happened at the major league level, um, you know, a lot of teams have gone the other route with player personnel, people, you know, their own base. Always doing, you know, I don't want to say everything, but being involved in a chance to make an impact on a club has always been the greatest attraction. And what better way to make an impact on the club than to get a chance to choose the people that you're going to be with that entire season. Yeah. I, I recall back in the, like, 94, 95, uh, 1995, uh, the uh, Albany County Diamond Dogs and the Northeast League started up oh, after, right. after, after the... Uh, Excellent. I, I covered that uh, the Diamond Dogs team for years, and they had some great teams, won a couple of championships, including uh, yeah. 1999 when they beat Winnipeg, and they uh, when the Northern League and the Northeast League played, uh, like, a merged schedule. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that time period, and uh, and that is a... You know, that is wonderful information because, you know, and you just said it, the teams, you know, one thing that hasn't, that you hear a lot of times, and and I don't want to sound like the guy that, oh, things were so much. Day, one common refrain I'll hear from time to, oh, you know, the talent's never been better. The least. Actually, that's the one thing I will disagree with completely. The talent is as good as it was back in 1995 and mm. there were good players then great players um who went on to great careers you know in the major leagues and i think um at last count if i'm correct it's over 350 players have gone from the independent ranks to the major leagues in 30 years that's a pretty good ratio and that just and that's with the clubs that you know pay attention to it mm-hmm. you know there's still many MLB clubs prior to the partner wing designation who didn't get involved in the industry a little bit. So as far as a player, probably remember this as well as I, you know, the original beginnings weren't of, oh, let's be a feeder to Major League Baseball. That had nothing to do with it. As much as it's changed these days, and certainly it's not something you'd want to tell the players, you know, hey, that's not what we're here for. But it was really to provide, like it was in all, you know, underserved communities, communities like Evansville, where I managed that had lost their affiliation. It was really to do that. Stadiums that were older. I played in some wonderful ballparks, you know, including Bossy Field and that with the history, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Um, that certainly had gone by the wayside and. And then all of a sudden, in that late 90s, early 2000s, you started seeing stadiums built for the independent clubs. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the first sign that, you know, hey, this may have some lasting power. And all the credit, Northern, and that Wolf, and started up that league, you know, and, and the St. Paul Saints, you know, I've told years, that continues to play today, especially those that started as independent clubs, got stadiums built. 
they all owe a debt of gratitude to the St. Paul Saints because of the, you know, the notoriety they bought, they brought to us. And it was just something that um, really, um, you know, and I will tell you, you know, that merger that you're talking about, when I joined the Northern League, they had stopped, as you know, the, the murder. And it was one of the more disappointing things because we rekindled it later on in terms of, you know, crossover play. But, you know, with travel and the way it is, um, uh, you know, it didn't uh, it didn't continue until the Frontier League and the Can-Am League really merged. Yeah. I mean, two of the teams that played in the uh, Northeast League, the New Jersey Jackals and Quebec Capitals, are still going strong. I mean, I think the reason why the – it's maybe selfish <clears throat> on my part, but I think the reason why the Northern League pulled out because the Northeast League team was winning all the championships. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, and I will tell you, uh, like, like everybody will say, and and having had a chance now, certainly, you know, as I think probably, you know, very the Americans of 15 years ago or 20 years ago. And, you know, and especially, you know, the way it's structured right now, but um, for years, having clinically the front. You're cutting in and out. I, I thought you're cutting in and out here. So, yeah. So, uh, yes, uh, so uh, I'm sorry. That's all. You're, yeah, Let me, uh, but uh, <laughs> do I got you now? I got. Yep, we're good. Yeah, but uh, no, I was just saying that you know the nature of the, that was to the point of how good the competition was in every league. You know, although each league probably felt they were the best. Yeah. Uh, I think it was after the 2001, uh, it was, it was, I know Albany Colony won in 1999, New Jersey won in 2000, and the Adirondack Lumberjacks won in 2001. I think at that point, Northern yeah. Lake said, bye-bye, we're gone, we can't win. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, there's not as many independent leagues, but as you mentioned earlier, the fact that you know, Major League Baseball you know, has reduced the size of the minor league system, I mean, how important has the independent uh, leagues become to help uh, develop players and maybe uh, attract uh, you know the, the uh, major league teams to sign these guys for their minor league teams. Well, I think what uh, I've seen in you know certainly um, and, and you know I was you know I went to work for the Giants for you know a year you know and it, that was for a lot of personal reasons and I, I talked to some people about the franchise I was part of for you know nearly two decades was being sold and you know. For you know, and to go through another ownership group and some of the unknowns, especially after the pandemic, there was a lot of unknowns for everybody. And but I will say, what's happened with the partner league designation and really the four leagues that fall into that category is now you have all thirty teams with a vested interest. The resource of the players has always been incredible for the teams that have utilized it. It's just like anything else, the teams that you know, we're in the early stages of utilizing Latin America. The teams that have utilized the independently have had great success. I think it was just the difference that there was only a handful of teams that were utilizing it to its fullest. And, and now you have all 30 teams. So that's an attraction, I would think, to the player. It's an attraction, you know, to the manager that manages in these leagues. And once you can get, um, 
you know, and certainly Tri-City experienced this, the Valley Cats did, you know, the toughest way possible after, you know, 2020, you know, the Kane County situation and the American Association, very similar. But what I've, what I've found over the years, um, you know, I, I have always been the one that I, I love the industry, whether you call it independent or the partner league designation and just what it provides. And it really is an opportunity for the communities to take ownership of their team. What kind of player are you looking for when you go out and then uh, recruit uh, players? Well, I'm, I'm looking for a player that uh, first and foremost, um, you know, and to, to think a player the ultimate goal is not to play in the big leagues would be naive. Every player, whether he's 21 years old or the player that's continuing his career at 31 or, you know, even, even some guys, I mean, over the years, we've seen players play till they're 40 years old, mm-hmm. provide an opportunity, whether it's the Atlantic league or, you know, and now the frontier league has changed dramatically since the merger with the East teams in the last few years. But, I, the type of player for me is the player that's playing for all the other reasons other than making it to the big leagues, because I want a player who cares about what we just talked about. You know, you know, the type of player, you know, I could tell you, you know, pitchers that throw strikes, you know, guys who can help you in a couple different ways to win a game. And that's really, but that's no different than any other manager probably that's managed in the history of the game. But we're always looking for a guy that, is a little multidimensional, can help you in a couple different ways, but most importantly, he cares about what that franchise. He he comes here for other reasons because he loves to play, he loves to compete, you know, he becomes a part of that team. You know, what I'm hoping, any place I'm in, and you know, I was fortunate, as I said, to be in a place for 17 years where the guys who played there, they will tell you their memories of that place and and how much they enjoy it is every bit as much as they love playing for the Kansas City Royals. And that's that's what I'm looking for, is that player who, you know, cares just as much about this, and it's just not another stop on the road for him. Yeah. How would you describe your managerial style? Do you, do you rely on the analytics or, you, or, or you, you go with your gut? Well, you know, um, as, as, as we all know, you know, if we've been around a little bit, it, you know, it's easy to say from our side is that analytics have always been there. Information, whether it was on index cards or, you know, spray charts being done with colored pencils and, you know, and paper <laughs> in a dugout. So those have always been there. And I love information. Mm-hmm. I really do. And and certainly being a chance to be with an organization that is as progressive as the San Francisco Giants. I mean, there they are, at the, you know, along with a few other organizations at the top in terms of that department. I, I want to learn as much as I can. Now, the great thing about what we're doing with Valley Cats or in the Frontier League is ultimately I would prefer to still rely on the ability for me to put the club in the best position possible by preparation before a game. And that means preparation on the field, not so much all the information, because when the game happens, I prefer to let the players decide the game. And and so in that sense, I love all the information. It'll be provided. But 
not driven by the out. You know, for me, I I just think sometimes you can get caught up too much in letting that decide the outcome of the game. Yeah, I'm I'm old school. I I still you know, I, I miss you know, sacrifice bunts. I mean, obviously the stolen bases come back thanks to the limited number of. Uh, uh, throwers yeah. to a first base in Major League Baseball, but there's still some things, especially when you get to the extra innings in, in the major leagues. Obviously, uh, obviously, major, uh, deciding games in um, Frontier League is very different from what they do in the major leagues. But right. Uh, right. but it seems like you have a, you get that ghost runner on second base, and nobody wants to bunt, Every, especially <laughs> the home team. If you have a chance to win the game, you move the runner uh, up. I, 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 I tell you, it drives what, me nuts. Probably- we probably share that. I I will yell at the TV if this thing gets to the twelfth or thirteenth <laughs> inning and nobody has sacrificed bunnage. Yeah. I, I will yell. And and obviously, you know, the manager is in a position where he has the analytics to the side, and you know, it's been now well versed over the last seven five years. Well, the sacrifice bunt actually decreases. Well. You know, it may over 162 games when you quantify something like that. However, at the most critical times, and to your point, not only the lack of actual bunting, the inability for somebody to lay down a sacrifice bunt. Listen, I miss a beautiful, if not the best play in baseball, but a beautifully executed hit and run Mm -hmm. is one of the greatest things about the game if you know, if you grew up in the 70s or and you went and watched the ball game and you'd see that runner moving from, you know, I grew up as an Oakland A's fan in the Bay Area, Campy Campanaris and Dick Green and all yeah. those guys. And you'd watch a beautifully executed hit and run. And I'm, that that is a great play. Now, it, analytically, it will tell you, it, you know, it's not a great play. <laughs> but when executed wonderfully, and the one thing that I've always found that when you do some of those other things, whether you call it, you know, I think sometimes the phrases get used to, you know, you know, small ball, mm-hmm. you play for, you know, those phrases get overused a lot. But I don't, I think the one thing that gets lost is when I've seen a club sacrifice bunt or hit and run, that dugout for your ball club comes alive. Yeah, There's high fives just as if the guy had hit a grand slam. And so if you could do something that creates that kind of culture where your club responds to it, I think that can pay dividends. Yeah. One thing I thought maybe would have come back uh, this year with uh, the limited uh, throwovers would, would have been the, the uh, pitch out, but I, I haven't seen the, that come, come back to No, uh, no. Um, you know, and then the pitch out and certainly with the way the catcher's on the, with the one knee. And although I will tell you, out of all the things that I saw change, I am surprised at the increase in stolen bases because we use the limited pickovers and and I saw the stolen bases on the rise. I think what happened, and I think pitchers will adjust this year and in the future if that rule stays in place, is pitchers stopped utilizing mm-hmm. the pickup and because they didn't want to get to two. And I think it became almost too predictable that, hey, this guy's going to only go over one time. And I just saw a limit of guys, you know, who would not pick over. We saw it in our league and, you know, to the point to where the guy would get such a big lead, we were thinking, just pick over. Even if he still, you know, if he, <laughs> if you don't get him, the guy still gets second base anyway. Yeah. So. One other thing that drives me nuts in baseball, I mean, I remember back when I was a kid watching games, balls go in the dirt. 
they throw them out now. Baseballs have a life of a fruit fly. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, I don't understand. You throw a baseball out after you know, one pitch or two pitches. I, uh, that's another. That's just another time for another story for another time. That's, pro- that's probably also general managers and uh, a front worst nightmare when every ball is getting thrown out yeah. or you know the final out of every inning gets thrown in the stand. Yes, um, you know, trust me. You know, being in a, from a time when you could hit a ball. Off the left field ball, warning track, throw it in and still use it. But mm-hmm. the one that hits the dirt, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> one last question: You mentioned you grew up as an Oakland A's fan. Uh, your thoughts about the team heading to Vegas in a couple of years? Oh wow, that's uh, <clears throat> you know, I think as we all get older, of course, <clears throat> the affection for the team is still those '70s Oakland A's to me. Yeah, you know. Uh, in not having lived in the, the Bay Area for a few years. Uh, you know, certainly I follow what they do every day, but, you know, the nostalgia is the one that is going to bother, you know, because I also grew up in a time before the Raiders, you know, had moved back and the stadium changed transformation. If anybody who was fortunate to be able to watch games in the 70s, whether they were the World Series games, and you saw the backdrop of the Bay Area mm-hmm. It was a beautiful place to watch a ball game. Yeah. Now, it wasn't Fenway Park. It never, you know, it wasn't Ridley Field. You know, it certainly wasn't Camden Yards from later on. But it was a beautiful setting, not too much different than Dodger Stadium, which has lasted throughout the years. And uh, so with that being said, once they changed the dynamic of the ballpark, you know, everything probably took on a, a sense that, you know, this is this is not a baseball stadium anymore. It's not a great place to watch game. But the fan base, you talk about something that cares passionately. Um, that's a fan base that probably shares a lot of the nostalgia I do. So certainly uh, sad to see it go, but it seems like, you know, Las Vegas and, and those type of places, you know, are the future of uh, – Major League Sports. Yeah, it was a tough time losing the Raiders of Vegas and uh, the Warriors going across the bay to San Francisco. So tough times for the Oakland sports fans. But, uh, uh, Greg, appreciate a few minutes, and uh, we'll probably talk uh, right before the season uh, when you guys have media day. I appreciate you coming on for a few minutes and uh, talking about the job, and congratulations again. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you. All right, that's Greg Tiger. I'll be back to wrap up the podcast and have the latest winner in the Daily Gazette's auto racing. Oh, I'm not auto racing. The You Pick a Football Contest in just a moment. Hi, this is the College of St. Rose women's basketball head coach, Will Brown. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor, Ken Schott. Meet Andrew Waite. He's a dedicated journalist with a passion for research and a commitment to getting all sides of the story. Whether it's a local issue or an upstate trend, I do the stories and interviews that shed light on what's important to you. Stay informed. Read Andrew Waite in the Daily Gazette. It's my job to offer commentary about what's happening in our community and what it means to our readers. The Gazette, reporting based on accuracy and integrity. It's who we are. It's what we do. 
Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Indiana Nash. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous and healthy 2024. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 14 winner in the Daily Gazette's You Pick'em Football Contest was Joe D'Angelo of Schenectady with a 12-3 record. Joe wins a $100 Hannaford gift card. Congratulations, Joe. The VIP winner was Ed Fazone of Eddie F's Seafood Restaurant with a 9-6 record. I was 7-8. I am 130-68 on the season. My Gazette colleague Adam Schindler was also 7-8. He is 117-81. I'll announce you pick a football contest winner's name, and that winner's name will appear in Thursday's Daily Gazette. To play, go to dailygazette.com and click on the You Pick 'em Football banner. You can look for my picks at dailygazette.com. Just because the COVID 19 mandates are easing, that does not mean you should relax. Be vigilant. If you have not gotten vaccinated or received a booster shot, please do so. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shot Podcast. I want to thank Adam Schinder, Mark Ketchester, and Greg Taggart for being on the show. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on X and Threads at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots Podcast are not necessarily those of the Daily Gazette Company. The Parting Shots Podcast is a production of the Daily Gazette Company. I'm Daily Gazette Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports.